Good morning. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 3. Now before we begin, let me explain uh, what it is that we're about to do. Uh, First, I am going to read our passage for this morning, uh, Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. Uh, And the reason that we're going to study that passage today is simply because last Sunday we covered Luke chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 14. And then I'm going to do my best to explain what the passage means, uh, what God is saying through this text, and then how we can apply it to our lives. Uh, And your job as the hearer is to have your Bible open in front of you so that you can see how what I'm saying is coming from the text. Uh, And to pay attention as best as you can. And you might find it helpful to take notes. And if you want to do that, there is space on the back of your bulletin. Or you might find it more helpful to just sit and listen. Right? Whatever works best for you. Then after the sermon is done, uh, there's more. You're going to want to spend time uh, maybe this afternoon or this evening or even throughout the week uh, meditating on these things. uh, Thinking specifically about how this text calls you to think or act, or live differently. But just like I said last week, uh, none of that is really worth anything unless we have God's help. And so, uh, first and foremost, not because it's our custom, but because we truly do need God's help in this, uh, let's start off our time by asking Him to help us. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning as we look into this passage of your holy scriptures. Pray that you would be with me as I speak, that indeed every word that comes out of my mouth would be true and helpful for your people. We pray that you would be with each and every person here listening, that you would give them ears to hear your word, even that which is difficult or convicting. God, we believe that your word has the power to change hearts and to change lives. And so we pray that you would indeed do that amongst us today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is the word that God has for you today. Look at Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 20. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire." So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Last week, you'll remember, we talked about John the Baptist, both who he was as the forerunner to the Messiah and what he came to do proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And we spoke specifically about his message of repentance. Uh, What does it mean to repent? 
talked about how repentance is not just religious ritual, and it's not just about who your lineage is. We talked about what it means to bear fruit in repentance. And we talked about the urgency of repentance. Even now, the axe is laid at the root of the trees. But, and you'll notice this if you kind of skim your eyes through verses 7 through 14, uh, in this teaching on repentance— at least as Luke has recorded it for us in this passage, John doesn't directly mention Jesus at all. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that John didn't talk about Jesus. No, of course not. As a matter of fact, the whole point of his ministry was to point people to Christ. Remember how Paul described John's ministry in Acts 19.4. John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And we saw how Luke even alluded to the Christ-centeredness of John's message. Look at verse 3. John proclaimed the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, John, uh, John as a man, John as a sinner like us, John could provide no forgiveness of sins. He could only point to people, point people to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so what was strongly implied right, in last week's text is front and center, right, bright, bold font in this week's text, because this week's text, right, verses 15 through 20, it's all about John's Christ-centered preaching. So what I want to do now is go through our verses and look at four points about John's Christ-centered preaching. And while you and I are not prophets like John, uh, we're not uh, a unique figure in redemptive history like John the Baptist, I do think that there is a lot that we can learn from John and his preaching. A lot that we can apply to our own lives as we think about our own evangelism, as we think about sharing Christ with those around us, as we think about our own ministries and the ways in which we serve the Lord. So let me make four points now about John's Christ-centered preaching from Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 20. Point number one is that John's Christ-centered preaching exalted Jesus. John's Christ-centered preaching exalted Jesus. Start in verse 15. As the people were in expectation, they said, well, there is an understatement. For 400 years, since Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, God had been silent, so to speak, and his people had been expectantly waiting. And as God's people hear about things that have been happening, angelic appearances, Saints like Simeon and Anna at the temple. Remember how Anna would speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem? And so there was this palpable excitement that was building up. Is God going to send the Messiah in our lifetimes? And here comes this guy in the spirit and power of Elijah living in the wilderness, eating locusts and wild honey, dressed in a garment of camel's hair, like, clearly there's something unique going on here. And he's proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. He's, he's preaching about the imminence of judgment. Lots and lots of people are going out to him to be baptized. And so it's only natural that the people would wonder, is he the one? Is this the Christ? 
Uh, Clearly this man is a prophet. The first one that God has sent to us in 400 years. But is he the prophet? The prophet that Moses told us about. The Messiah, the Christ. Is that him? Verse 15, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. But John is very clear. Make no mistake about it. I am not the Christ. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, referring to Jesus, who is the Christ, he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now John, uh, not John the Baptist, but John the disciple, uh, John the apostle, the, the one who wrote the gospel of John, Well, in his gospel, uh, he records a different instance in which the same issue came up. Uh, Are you the Messiah? Look at how John responds in uh, John chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. This is the testimony of John the Baptist when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Let me talk about driving the point home. He confessed. And he did not deny, but he confessed. Let's be crystal clear on this, right? Let's make no mistake about this. I am not the Christ. Going back to our passage in Luke, look at what John says about Jesus in verse 16. He's the one, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Obviously, that's an expression of humility, I think we get that even on a surface reading. But in order for us to really grasp like the weight and gravity of that statement, we need a little bit of cultural background. So you see, back then, uh, men would go everywhere in sandals. And they didn't have like the nicely paved roads and the sanitation systems that we do. And so you can imagine uh, that feet would get really dirty and gross by the end of the day. And so untying the straps of someone's sandal, like stooping down to take someone's dusty and dirty and uh, presumably disgusting shoes off, that was a duty that was viewed among the Israelites as so lowly and so humiliating and so degrading that a Jewish slave was not allowed to do that for his master. It would have been below them. And so what John is saying here is that that lowest of tasks, a task that is below even a Jewish slave, well, that's too high of a task for me for, to do for Jesus. You say, well, wow, that, that, that is some humility right there. But it's not like John is, I don't know, struggling with low self-esteem or he's like kind of moping around like Eeyore, like, well, I'm just not worthy of anything. I mean, John, in every sense, is a great man. You think about it, his birth was prophesied by an angel. Uh, That angel told his father that he would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He's a great man. He's got lots and lots of people coming out to him in the wilderness to be baptized by him. He's amassed this great following that actually thinks that he's the Messiah. Remember what Jesus said about him. Among those born of woman, none is greater than John. By any measure, John the Baptist was a great man But even the best of men are men at best. And John fully understood who this was that he was talking about. This is Jesus, the Son of God, very God of very God. 
And so just imagine you take the gap between a Jewish master and a Jewish slave, and however big that gap is in terms of social status or whatnot, at the end of the day, right, they're both human beings. But the gap between John, even as a great man, as a created being, and then here you have Jesus, the uncreated one. You've got this infinitely great gap because Jesus is God. So John says, we're not even in the same ballpark. I'm not worthy to unstrap his sandals. Friends, that is true biblical humility, right? Seeing oneself rightly and truly in light of who God is. All of the differences between us as people, well, that tends to diminish pretty quickly when we have a right view of who God is. So John He gets that. He understands that. He understands who he is in light of who Jesus is. So he never makes his ministry about himself. He never makes his ministry about his own glory or his own reputation. There was a a brief season, and Luke doesn't cover it for us, but John's gospel tells us about it. There's a brief season when John the Baptist and Jesus, when their ministries overlapped. And there were some folks that came to John the Baptist, and they say, hey, that that Jesus guy, all are going to him. What about you? What about your followers? As if they were expecting him to be maybe jealous or feel territorial about it or something. And what does John the Baptist say in response? He must increase, and I must decrease. It's not that he must increase, and I must increase in the process as well. It's not making a name for Jesus so that in the process I might make a name for myself. It's that he must increase. And in John's case, right, in John's specific role as the forerunner to the Messiah, in order for Jesus to increase, John must decrease. He must move into the background so that people will follow Jesus, so that people will listen to Jesus, so that people will go to Jesus instead of John. And John's totally happy to do so. He who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. That's who you need to look to. That's who I came to go before and point people to. That's who needs to be exalted. Point number one, John's Christ-centered preaching exalted Jesus. Now you might be sitting there thinking to yourself, well, of course John's Christ-centered preaching exalted Jesus. Christ-centered preaching by definition exalts Jesus. That's self-evident. Well, yes, but brothers and sisters, it's entirely possible for us to use Christ-centered preaching or Christ-centered ministry or Christ-centered anything as a means to subtly exalt ourselves. Just think about our own lives or own ministries, our own service for the Lord. Once we lose track of what John the Baptist seemed to understand so well, like who he is in light of who Jesus is, he who is mightier than I is coming. Once we start thinking we're kind of a big deal ourselves, well, it's all too easy in our sinful flesh for us to make Jesus and his greatness really just a means to our own greatness. Yeah, I'll point to Jesus, but I'm going to elevate myself in the process. 
Yeah, I'll exalt Jesus, but what I really care about is my own exaltation. And so maybe right beneath the surface of exalting Christ, well, we really want the accolades and the attention and the praise and the honor for ourselves. And so you teach a Bible study that's Christ-centered and really points the people to him and it really exalts Jesus But at the end of it, you're just itching to hear the praise and the commendation and the compliments. Like, that's the most important thing to you. That's when you're really satisfied. Or you serve the church in some way that Christ might be exalted. But when it's not recognized or it goes unnoticed, well, then you throw yourself a big pity party. Well, doesn't that then expose your heart's true desires. That it really was more about other people exalting you and commending you and thanking you and recognizing you than it was about the exaltation of Christ, regardless of who takes notice. That should never be. We should have the mindset of a John the Baptist where in our hearts we truly believe that we are nothing and nobody in light of his glory. And we truly count it a privilege to even be called his servant. And then that reflects itself in our message, in our preaching, in our evangelism, in our ministry, in our service to one another. Listen to Paul. Pick up on the same theme here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, your lowly servants, for Jesus' sake. Point number one, John's Christ-centered preaching exalted Jesus. Which brings us to point number two, John's Christ-centered preaching warned of judgment. Look again at verse 16. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. We've already talked about how John points to Jesus as being a greater person than him, right? He who is mightier than I. But here there's a second way in which John points to Jesus as being greater, and that's in his baptism. And so the very thing that John is best known for, his baptism, right? He's John the Baptist. Well, even in that, John says Jesus is greater because I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So it's not just that Jesus' person is greater, it's that Jesus' baptism is greater. What exactly does it mean that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire? Well, I think the Holy Spirit part is relatively straightforward because it's referred to several times in the book of Acts. Remember that Acts was also written by Luke. Uh, Jesus tells his disciples right before he ascends, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And that, of course, finds its immediate fulfillment at Pentecost when the disciples are filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, And it finds its ultimate fulfillment in all believers because all believers are baptized with the Holy Spirit. Every believer in Christ has the indwelling Holy Spirit who works in us to guide us and lead us and produce the fruit of holiness in us. Every believer has the Holy Spirit so that Paul can say, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. That's Romans 8, 9. 
So the baptism of the Holy Spirit part, I think that's pretty straightforward. But what's up with the baptism of fire? So one way to interpret it is to see the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of fire as one and the same baptism. In which case, the the fire is like a refining fire in the life of the believer to purify them. That's the imagery of like fire removing the dross of sin uh, the way that, say, gold would be purified. Another way to interpret it is to see them as two separate things, two separate baptisms. Baptism of the Spirit for believers and a baptism of fire for unbelievers. And I personally lean lean towards this view— Uh, And I lean towards this view primarily because of the context. Look at the two other times that John mentions fire in this chapter. First verse 9. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And that's clearly referring to a fire of judgment. And then even like a closer context, look at the very next verse, verse 17. Uh, The unquenchable fire there is also clearly referring to judgment. And so since in the other two places in this chapter in which John is speaking, in which he brings up fire, it's referring to a fire of judgment for unbelievers, it seems most natural to assume that the same imagery, the fire of judgment, is being used in verse 16 as well. Now, if that's the case, then what John is saying in verse 16, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, is essentially that Jesus has come to divide and to separate. Some will undergo the baptism of the Spirit, and some will undergo the baptism of fire. And we see that idea of division and separation further developed in verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So back then, before all the uh, agricultural machinery that we have now, there was this whole process involved in harvesting wheat. So first you would take like the stalks of grain and you would bring it to a threshing floor. Like in the book of Ruth, right? The threshing floor. And you would have the oxen kind of tread over the grain. And that would separate the grain from the the stalks and the husks and all that. But now you've got this big mess, right, on the threshing floor. You've got a mix of grain, which is what you want. And then you've got the chaff, like think straw, uh, which you don't want. And so typically a threshing floor would be constructed on the top of a hill uh, in which uh, there would be a breeze or or wind uh, exposure, And so you would take a winnowing fork, so you can picture like a big shovel, and you would just basically take that mixture of what you want and what you don't want, and you would throw it into the air, right, as a strong breeze was coming. And the grain, which is heavier, would fall down, and the chaff, which is lighter, would get blown to the perimeter. We do that enough times, you will successfully separate the wheat from the chaff. You will separate that which you want to keep from that which you don't. And that is a picture of judgment. That is a picture of Christ's separating work. Separating the wheat from the chaff. Separating the sheep from the goats. Standing between the living and the dead. Those who are his elect, 
Those whom, right, remember last week's sermon, God chooses to grant faith and repentance, they are the wheat that he gathers into his barn, safely harvested. But those who reject him, those who do not repent and turn to him, well, they're like the chaff. And what do they do with chaff back then? Well, they burned it as fuel for the fire. Again, a picture of judgment. But look again at the end of verse 17. This is no ordinary fire. Here's an unquenchable fire. A fire that doesn't go out. An eternal fire, if you will. It's picking up on a theme from Isaiah. A theme that Jesus himself would later pick up on in describing hell as a place where their worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. And so Jesus, in his role as judge, the Father judges no one but gives all judgment to the Son, in his role as judge, he separates the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, the believers from the unbelievers. And here's the thing about that baptism, right? That baptism of spirit or fire. Jesus makes no mistakes because the Lord knows those who are his. So that's another way, if you're keeping track, that Jesus is greater than John. Because John can call out unrepentant people, and John can command people to repent, and John can baptize those who seem truly repentant, but John cannot see the heart of the people. And so surely John baptized even those who were not truly repentant. Because you can fool John. But Jesus... In his ministry, his ministry of separation, he makes no mistakes. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. So you can fool John the Baptist. You can fool me. You can fool the church. You can fool your friends. You can fool your family. But you cannot fool Jesus. His judgment is sure, and his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Point number two is that John's Christ-centered preaching warned of judgment. Point number three, John's Christ-centered preaching was good news. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. By the way, there is your biblical warrant uh, for long sermons. Pastor, you preach too long. No, I just give many other exhortations, right? I'm in the spirit of John the Baptist here. But this is a good reminder, though, isn't it? That when we read about someone's sermon or someone's preaching in our Bibles— Like, we just have a little snapshot, right? We just have a little highlight reel. It's like in Acts chapter 2, right? Peter gets up and preaches at Pentecost, and and most of that chapter is Peter's sermon. But then Luke reminds us that there was a lot more. In verse 40, he says, And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. In the same way, John the Baptist preached with many other words exhortations. Like what we have recorded here in Luke chapter 3 is just a small sliver of a sample. But what was he preaching? Look again in verse 18. He preached good news to the people. Preached good news. Evangelizo, right? It sounds like our evangelism 
Sometimes it's translated preach the gospel because the gospel is good news. This is a word that we're going to see like two dozen times in the books of Acts and Luke because it's such a dominant theme, right? Proclaiming, preaching the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But at this point, uh, some of you might be a little bit puzzled because you think, well, point number two and point number three, they kind of seem to be at odds with one another. Uh, like, did John, point number two, preach judgment? Or did John, point number three, preach good news? Well, not only is the answer both, but here's the key. The answer has to be both. Well, let's think about that. Because suppose that there was no such thing as judgment for sin. Suppose for a moment that God is not holy, and therefore God does not have to judge sin. He can just kind of brush it aside or sweep it under the rug. And so there are no negative consequences for our sin against him. There's no judgment, there's no hell, there's no wrath of God, there's no punishment for sin. Well, in that case, why would it be good news that Jesus came to die for sinners? It's like, thank you, but uh, we don't really need that. It's only with a proper biblical understanding of sin and judgment, which starts with the fact that God is 100% holy, 100% separated from sin, and that God is just. And therefore, since God is holy and just, he cannot just sweep sin under the rug. He must judge sin rightly. He must punish offenses against him. And so as a result, right, those who have sinned against him, that's me and that's you, the people to whom John was preaching, well, we all deserve to go to hell where the wrath of God for our sin will be poured out eternally, unquenchably. But now having preached judgment, right, with an understanding of judgment, with this foundation of the fact that we should be judged for our sins— with an understanding that the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire, then we can proclaim and understand and rejoice in the good news that Jesus came to die for sinners. Only then is it good news that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That Jesus, who never sinned, who never did anything wrong, who never did anything deserving of judgment, how he went on a cross and died, taking the full wrath of God in the place of sinners like me and you. He takes the judgment of sin, uh, the burning of the chaff, to use that illustration, in our place, and in exchange he gives us his perfect righteous record, so that if you repent and believe, if you will turn from your self-reliance and your self-righteousness, and you will turn to Jesus as the only one who can save your soul— well, you can be saved today. You can have your sins forgiven today. You can have eternal life today so that when the winnowing fork does the work of separation, the wheat from the chaff, that division, you will be found among the grain taken into the barn to live forever with your Creator. Well, John the Baptist certainly wouldn't have had a, a full understanding of the cross event looking forward like we might looking back, that's certainly the same good news that John preached. 
Repent of your sin and turn to Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look to him. Point number three, John's Christ-centered preaching was good news. Just by way of application, as we think about points number two and points number three and the balance in our own lives, Fred, you may think that you're being, I don't know, polite or kind or nice when you withhold talk about judgment and hell from your evangelism. And I'm not saying that you need to go all fire and brimstone and just preach judgment, right? That's the other end of the extreme, which we don't want to fall into. Judgment, judgment, judgment. But unless people know how bad their situation is, unless they know how real and imminent judgment and hell are, unless they understand how deadly sin is, how will they understand their need for a Savior? Point number three, John's Christ-centered preaching was good news. Point number four, John's Christ-centered preaching was costly. Look at verses 19 and 20. But, and but draws a contrast to verse 18, because the good news of judgment and salvation, well, it's not always received as good news by everyone. Like, lest you think that everyone who heard John the Baptist was like these repentant tax collectors and soldiers. They're saying, well, what must I do? What must I do to repent? Well, Luke reminds us that the good news is not always received well. Like, here is a living, breathing illustration of the fact that Jesus divides into the wheat and the chaff, the sheep and the goats, those who will receive God's word, and then those who will reject it. Herod. But it's also an illustration of the truth that sometimes Christ-centered preaching is costly, even to the point of death. Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Again, a little background will be helpful here. So Herod the Tetrarch, uh, that's Herod Antipas, Uh, We talked about him last week. He's one of the sons of Herod the Great. So Herod the Tetrarch, he falls in love with a lady named Herodias, who is not only his half-brother's daughter, but she's also his other half-brother's wife. So you can, if you want extra credit, you can draw out the family tree on your own time. Uh, It's very complicated. But basically, he divorces his wife. Herodias divorces her husband And then Herod takes Herodias to be his wife. And so if you're keeping score, right, that's one case of adultery, two illicit divorces, a marriage that's prohibited because of two different family relations. Like this is an abomination in every sense of the word. Like you do not have to be an Old Testament scholar understanding the Old Testament law to see that this is wrong. This is bad. So John reproves Herod for it. And not just this particular sin. Look at the end of verse 19. For all the evil things that Herod had done. There we don't have the details, but we're also pretty sure that John didn't pull any punches. You remember when Zechariah was told, this is John's father, all the way back in chapter 1, 
that his soon-to-be-born son would come in the spirit and power of Elijah? Well, here's John the Baptist, kind of channeling his inner Elijah, just like Elijah repeatedly confronts wicked King Ahab for all of his wickedness. Well, here we have John repeatedly confronting one in the spirit and power of Ahab. And all that results in Herod imprisoning John. And we don't have the details here in Luke chapter 3, but Matthew and Mark, they kind of fill in the rest of the story. John's in prison for some time, and then he's beheaded at the request of Herodias' daughter. So just consider for a moment this man, John the Baptist. What is his reward on earth? for being a faithful, Christ-centered gospel preacher. He never was rich. He never lived in luxury. He never lived in comfort. Uh, Jesus would later ask, what then did you go out to see? Man dressed in soft clothing? It's like, no, that's not John at all. And his ministry, well, as successful as it might have been for a short time, well, it gets cut short. And so there's no speaking tours, no conferences. His public ministry lasts about a year. No riches, no decades-long ministry, no accolades. And he gets thrown in prison, then he gets his head chopped off, and thus he joins a long line of God's prophets who were killed for speaking the truth. Point number four, John's Christ-centered preaching was costly. So let me finish with two applications for us under this point. First, beware of silencing the voice of God. Beware of silencing the voice of God. Look again at our verses. Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. Added this to them all. Like to top off all of the wicked things that he did, he locks up and eventually beheads the one person who most clearly spoke truth into his life. The one person who had the courage to reprove him for his illicit marriage the prophet of God who spoke the word of God into his life. Herod, in essence, silences the word of God in his life. So he hears the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, repent. Herod, you must repent of your adultery, of your sin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, even your sin, Herod, if you would repent and turn to him. And what does Herod do? He silences it. And so I tell you, dear friends, by extension and application, to beware of silencing the voice of God. And obviously none of you have jailed or beheaded a prophet. We can do this in any number of ways. Maybe you are here this morning in this church Because in your previous church, you were confronted on some sin and you just went somewhere where you thought you could be anonymous. Or maybe someone in this church 
has confronted you or reproved you lovingly on some sin, now you're just thinking about avoiding them or cutting them off or even switching churches. Or maybe it's just you picking and choosing which commands in the scriptures you're actually going to follow. And then when your conscience starts preaching to you about those other ones, well, you lock it up as if it were John the Baptist. Friend, let me warn you, that is a potentially deadly path to head down. Because you are, like Herod, hardening your heart, rejecting the word of God, and that is a sure path to destruction. Beware of silencing the voice of God. Second application point here is to count the cost. Brothers and sisters, this is something that we know to be true, like maybe in the back of our minds. But then there's a story like this that just kind of really brings it out into the forefront where it is unavoidable and we just kind of have to address it. And that's that if you faithfully preach the gospel, if you faithfully share about Jesus with the people in your life, it might, at least in the here and now, be quite costly. It might cost you friends. It might cost you relationships. It might cost you a promotion at work. It might cost you your job entirely. It might cost you financially. It might cost you in terms of ease and comfort. It might even, John the Baptist, cost you your freedom and your life. But then we're reminded of what Jesus himself would say later on in the book, Luke 14, 28, which of you desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost. And here's the thing. When a child of God does sit down and count the cost, when they, by faith, weigh the light momentary affliction against the eternal weight of glory, well, all of a sudden... Christ-centered preaching doesn't seem so costly after all. Because we're reminded in John the Baptist that the rewards for a life lived for the glory of Christ were never supposed to be realized in this life. And whatever John gave up in this life because his Christ-centered preaching was so costly, guarantee you a moment in heaven in the presence of God, surely made up for it all. And whatever hardships he endured, and whatever hardships the saints of God have endured throughout the centuries, uh, persecution, imprisonment, even, in this case, beheading, they're instantly forgotten the second we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of of your master. Friends, Christ-centered preaching is costly, and so you must count the cost. But if by faith you do, I think you'll find that the pearl of great price is worth everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this narrative of John the Baptist. 
We thank you that he went before Jesus to point others to Jesus. We pray that we, in whatever station and ministry you have given us, that we might do the same, that we might ourselves look to Christ and point others to Christ, no matter what the cost, knowing that our reward is in heaven. We ask this in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.